This is Comic Shenanigans, episode 944, Comic Talk. What makes an X-Men team? Welcome to Comic Shenanigans, episode 944. It's another Comic Talk episode. I'm joined by Nathan Strzok today. And really what we're talking about is what is it that really, truly makes an X-Men team? So in, in terms of composition, what does it mean for you when you read an X-Men comic to get a, what really makes an X-Men team? Is it about you know certain interactions of characters? Is it about fulfilling certain uh, archetypes that have to be on the team? What is it that really, truly makes an X-Men team? And I thought, who better to talk about this philosophically than Nathan Strzok? Hi. <laughs> um, so in real time, I'm hearing this as you are hearing this. Um, and as I said before he pressed record, that I've been waiting my whole life to talk about this. And he'll be crushed to hear I have never thought about this question. <laughs> never. That makes it good. I mean, is it is it any different than any other team? Like, if we're talking archetypes... I don't know. I, I think, yes, it is. I, I think there's something about inherent about the X-Men and how, again, pre-Kokoa maybe, but it's easier to archetype it. But, I mean, in terms of them battling a world that hates and fears them, like the, the, that, gen, that core kind of idea is very different than most other super teams. Uh, most other super teams, like Avengers and Justice League, whatever, they come together somehow for to protect you know the, for the greater good but they're never really seen as villains themselves or having to worry about prejudice or people acting against them or, or distrusting them now obviously in more modern comics you know people try to make it more modern and you know they do the new 52 and then maybe people don't trust the justice league or whatever the case might be but these things generally speaking are uh temporary and they're not and they kind of revert back to the status quo of these teams being trusted and believed in and i think so their, their archetypes in terms of their team's construction is different because there's a less of a philosophical kind of bent at the, at the core of it. There's something, there's an ideological difference that guides these people, these X-Men, these people who have banded together, not just to be heroes, but protect a world that actively doesn't like them and hates them, does set them apart from your standard superhero team. So I think there is something different that goes into the alchemy of creating a, a true X-Men team. And really what I want to get into more than just that kind of central question is also like what are the X-Men teams that have really resonated with you what were the combinations of characters that made them work and what does that maybe mean for how you interacted with the X-Men yeah I mean I guess when I was talking about our archetypes I mean that's that's a transcendent right universal supposed to be a universal truth so yes the plot or the, the basis for why the Avengers are together the Fantastic Four are together different from the X-Men but um, I suppose the argument is with archetypes you want a good blend of them you don't want the exact same archetypes appearing mm-hmm. you don't want three tricksters and you know four lovers and you know five explorers and then you're like okay well then it's redundant so I mean I guess that was like more of the philosophical thing about any team built uh, what is going to be compelling to the audience um do you change that makeup based on 
the plot based on the premise? I don't know that I do. I would say maybe at the heart of hearts, a good Avengers team and a good X-Men team most of similar ethos or similar philosophies about what makes a interesting dynamic, but certainly how they play out in a comic. I completely agree. Like you, you, you go for which characters can play up more of that a world that hates and fears them, you know, um, a premise. So I guess we could talk about it in multiple prongs, right? Like, um, there are some things that will be cross-team. There are some things that will work for Justice League and X-Men, and some things that will work for the Goonies and or <laughs> Avengers. And there'll be some things that, you know, might be more particular, um, particularly important for, for one team over the other. Like, you could argue that romance, at least for a, a while, romance may be not as crucial on an Avengers team as it is on the X-Men or... On the Fantastic Four, certainly, because so much of the Fantastic Four has been built on Reed and Sue's romance, and you really don't like, it's supposed to be a family, mm-hmm. so you really don't want to have too much romance mixed in there, <laughs> uh, for obvious reasons. Um, and I guess the X-Men, I mean, since their beginning, was like, Xavier's in love with Jean, and all the boys are in love with Jean, even closeted Bobby's in love with Jean, right? Like, it begins as this kind of horrifying um, <laughs> romance in a way that Avengers certainly doesn't, right? And like Janet's already with him when they kind of join the team and get together, and there's it's not really a thing that, that they're all kind of ogling Janet because she's a, you know, a woman who's made her choice and she's already partnered up. So they, they become this world police force, and the X-Men are a family that they chose, quote-unquote, rather than a corporation, rather than a, a, a Imaginots, as Mark Wade might put it, right? Yeah. So the, and uh, so, I mean... It's interesting to think about. I the first thing I'll tell you the first thing that came to mind when you launched this on me. Um, You're welcome. It was, <laughs> it was really. I mean, I, I would say, and a lot of people said this better than me before me that the X Men have certainly gone through a number of epochs where they have stood for different things. This idea that the world hates and fears them, but what do they do about it? Has greatly shifted. Um, the original team was five teenagers who were brought into a rich man's mansion. Actually, one of the teenagers is also rich. There's like a lot of wealthy, a lot of wealth there, a lot of prestige, a lot of putting on the airs of propriety and um, being sensible and part of a, of, a, of, a, of a nice, chaste, you know, gentle white society. Like they were all white-coated. Um, and so there was no, and, and, and besides Angel, you know, Beast comes along later as being someone who actually looks like a mutated human being. He's just, he's kind of larger with large hands, but the only one who really has a, a clear sign of mutation is Angel, and he finds that down. So they live in a rich guy's mansion, and they are kind of fighting for this dream that Xavier has for integration. They like they want assimilation and integration with humanity. They want they want peace to come about by not having a war, not having a conflict, and not standing out. And they are masked to do that, right? So no one can find out their identities and they could go about to, you know, buy some, go, get, getting some tea at the market one day and then finding Magneto the other. Uh, and no one, not, everyone else is none the wiser. It's all about this integration. Um, and then you don't really get until a few moments in Claremont's run, particularly with the Morlocks, where you get other ethos, other premises, other philosophies that are like, hey, what if we didn't hide? 
What if we have mutations that couldn't be hidden? What if we are visibly mutant and we aren't interested in hiding from that? Mask could try to make us all the pretties, but we're not going to do that. Um, you get a little bit there with Emma as well, and Emma's kind of got her own philosophy, and you get, you know, eventually Apocalypse, you get these different perspectives, but the X-Men, for the most part, follow this Xavier's dream of let's make the world safe for integration. Let's go fight other evil mutants, as we call them, because they want to change the world. They don't want to hide. They want to... Magneto wanted to reverse things and say, like, the mutants will be on top instead. So when it comes to the minority metaphor... Uh, what does a minority group do when they are trying to fight back against systemic oppression and discrimination? Do you overturn the system? Do you work within the system? Do you hide? Do you ostracize yourself? Do you, you leave that system as the Morlocks do? And so the original team, I guess it was very important that you had people that looked safe and then Beast mutates more and then Angel becomes a horseman of the apocalypse and becomes very difficult to hide. And those present new challenges for the team. Um, I would say you don't really, it's up until Morrison, or Morrison says, you know what? We've, we've done a lot of making sexy mutants. There's been a lot of new characters that are either white or beautiful and fit. And even Rogue, who you know starts off as fairly androgynous and um, you know not the pretty pretty, she later becomes completely glammed up like a runway model um, as time goes on, but she doesn't start that way. Um, Callisto, same kind of thing. So Orson, it seems like he really embraces that with quietly and says, no, we're going to have a guy who has translucent skin, this Glob Herman guy, right? And we're going to have people that, you know, uh, Beak eventually, Beak, but Beak is uh, Austin, right? Beak isn't Morrison, right? Uh, no, I think, no he, I, think, I think he's Morrison. Yeah, I, think, I think it's Ethan Van Siever who draws that issue, right? Where Angel and Beak are introduced. I think so. so yeah, it's Morrison. Uh, right? Those are examples of pick up characters that can't hide who they are. And I guess the minority metaphor before, with Jack and Stan, was you're Jewish and you try to hide amongst kind of ideas that would not be Jewish. And later you you know might say, well, the uh, metaphor might be trans or gay. And, and, and so visibly it might not be. That's the whole the binding thing, right? Trans or um, you're not visibly gay. It's not obvious to anyone that you're gay, but um, you, know, you have special something special about you that you can hide, and it becomes much more difficult when you're a teenager to hide. There's also the metaphor, right? Uh, but the visible minorities, um, really, you get that kind of more embraced with either the Morlocks or or person um, stuff. Where it's like, yeah, we're not we're not going to look like everyone else, and it's not easy for us to hide that. So my preference after this long rigmarole is a team that doesn't hide. That isn't the isn't the Jacks and, and Stan really team. Isn't a team that where everybody has this kind of like preferred idealistic kind of body or skin color or hair length, body type. So more variety. I, it, it would be my preference. A group that doesn't, that it can't hide. So that's kind of the visuals of it, right? And hours that are, that are visual. Um, what are your thoughts as I'm saying, I'm talking about that? Cause I, I'll come back to romance later, but no, that's interesting. Uh, I guess I, you know I hadn't really given it a lot of thought, but the idea of the, you know that being that sea change of you know the mutants will not hide anymore after Morrison, but it's true. I mean, even has Xavier come out and kind of finally state to the world like I'm a mutant, and up until then it would always been like sometimes he'd be seen around mutants or you know advocating for mutant causes, but no one would seem to ever say like 
by the way, are you a mutant? Like, you seem to really love mutants. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know a lot about them, and you're always on the scene, yeah, when we show up. Right? But it's, so it is interesting that it is not until after Morrison that they kind of, you know, flip the script and he come. Although, it's interesting to note that Marvel in general, around that period, was going through a period of no more secret identities anyway. Like, you have Cap is, like, everyone knows Steve Rogers is Captain America. You had, for a while, Daredevil. Everyone knew that, you know, was starting to know that Matt Murdock was Daredevil. Like, the whole idea of using, and Tony Stark as Iron Man, like, he's just accepted that everyone knows he's Iron Man these days. But up until, that was only true up until the early 2000s. So, it's interesting that, yes, Morrison kind of transforms the X-Men that way in terms of they're not hiding anymore. But also, Marvel in general was kind of saying, why are our superheroes hiding when they don't need to be? Um, you know, a few core heroes got to keep their secret identities. Some of them lost it and then got it back, like Spider-Man. Like, he went through the brief period where he was known. But for the most part, like, they were kind of getting rid of secret identities. So it's interesting that it, it does happen to coincide with what Morrison was doing with X-Men. Yeah, and even Morrison himself, his team is... Except for Beast, who has a, a mutation that is, you know, very visible and doesn't use an image inducer. As far as I can recall, I don't remember him using image inducers. No. Nightcrawler does all the time, right? Like back in the in the 80s, he's constantly popping on that image inducer, which, you know, comes eventually when they meet the Morlocks, there's this whole conversation about, like, why do you hide who you are? Or why don't you hide who you are? And, and something it is an interesting concept that the reason why I guess Beast never used it or didn't use, didn't use it as much is because he was an Avenger. You know, again, he had the celebrity of being an Avenger. So, as much as yes, he was an X Man, he was also you know this the celebrity. So he could he didn't have to hide anymore. Um, yeah, and, and it's not because the prejudice went away, right? That he still lives in a world that hates and fears them. But he's a great example of this kind of hyped the minority metaphor. You can say, well, someone might have grown up being prejudice against them but because now they're famous or rich it doesn't mean that the prejudice went away it's just like they're not going to be exposed they have a security detail mm-hmm. or, you know, on TV all the time and so this is not really they're not interacting with the average human that might say mutter something under their breath or maybe they do like maybe they're on television and someone behind the camera when they come on camera maybe they kind of think or mutter under their breath say something some kind of racial slur um but they don't know it, or they're kind of insulated, right? So Beast almost has this, like, world that he's insulated by the Avengers um, for a time, and then when he returns to X-Factor and then to X-Men, kinda, and it kind of comes back for Shindo, that Shindo would still be right. I think that's more since we can She says, I'll break up. Like, you become so mutated. You look so much more like a beast. They're, they're, they're batting the word bestiality around. I can't I can't do this anymore. She leaves it Trish really, Tilby is a character who's been woefully like, like really beaten up. <laughs> like they've they've made her do some terrible things. Yeah, and my my intro to her was when I first started reading X Men comics, which was you know uh, in the early three hundred, let's call it. I think like three twenty something, and uh, I meet her first when the X Men go into Shi'ar space to fight the Phalanx. That would be like three forty. Yeah, something like that. Um, and so she's just along for the ride. She was like there uh, shopping at like 343 or 344 or something like that when they're going out shopping for Christmas. Mm-hmm. Um, and she was there with Hank and then she gets like beamed up to the mothership and she's just around. And I'm like, hey, put on this this skin tight Shi'ar suit. This is what we all wear. And she's like, okay. So other than that, she was just like this kind of, I'm dating next man. So I didn't know a whole lot about her. And then the more 
of your stuff. It's interesting because that you just missed uh, a whole section where, like, after Age of Apocalypse and uh, in X Men Prime, she's the one who leaks to the world and announces to the world that the legacy virus is a thing. And so Beast was like, "You should not have told anyone this. You're setting off a wildfire." And so that's what kind of tur- uh, torpedoed their relationship at that point in time. Now, by the time you're you're thinking of, which is you know almost a year and a half later, obviously they started to reconcile. Um, but it was a, it was rough going for that character. That at least made sense. It was later on that where she seemed to be really kind of judging against his his mutation, and it felt like that wasn't the Trish I knew, at least from her characterization previous. But I mean, obviously there there would be people like that in the world who would just not be comfortable, uh, especially as he was obviously not the ape like beast we knew anymore, but now he was the more feline beast, right? So. I mean, he's had a lot of mutations. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I like sticking with the romance thing again. I, I do. I used to get annoyed that X-Men were dating outside of the team. Because mm. to me, again, coming in with the 90s, it was Gene like and Scott and Robin Gambit. And she doesn't, you know, Storm doesn't get involved with Forge in the, in the cartoon. But I was aware of things on the, the stands. Like, I was seeing mm-hmm. Will's Portacio covers in the, you know, the mints. And so... To me, I'm like, okay, this is what you do. Like, you just these amazing powers and this awesome group of people. And yes, we're family, but also we date each other because uh, it's not literal family. But again, it's this idea of like the, many of them pass out of their families. They're killed because of supremacists or run away because their families were like Ice Men because their family doesn't understand. Like, it's very clear that Ice Men's parents reject him mm-hmm. and his mutations have people around them. Tries to bring Rogue home at one point for a visit. Uh, was that three? No, that's like that, that's X Men issue. That's like X Men. It's like forty two to forty five in that in that time span. Yeah, it's a great Steve Epting cover with Psylocke and Archangel on it. But the actual issue is, I would say, mostly focused on the X Men Rogue plot and really really interesting, right? Like seeing how they why they need to choose their own family, why they cannot live with their personal families, um, and yet there's that all these sexy people into her and dating so. I was annoyed at first. I'm like, well, you know, it's your Stilby, and then you, you know, Candy, earlier comics, you got Candy Southern, and like, well, why would they? But no, I mean, and it's good. Like, you want to have allies, human allies, not not just not just because they want to date you. Like, you have your Maria McTaggart's who dated Xavier Wild, and she works with him. Um, we learn much later, of course, that she in fact wasn't a human ally at all the entire time, but. <laughs> During those decades, she was, as far as I knew, a human ally. And it's neat to have people dating, essentially, you know, homo superiors and homo sapiens dating each other and maybe having families together. And maybe they break up and maybe they don't. And, like, they have friends over and they have, like, a games night. And it's a community. Like, humans are welcome. Like, that That was always felt like, a, um, as I learned more and more about what the X-Men was, really, that metaphor, I was like, oh, this is, that's really, that's really positive. So that's why, to me, I guess, the makeup of the matter as much as like the Fantastic Four like you should have four members mm-hmm. four. like we can all agree on that even <laughs> though they skirt around now, let's, let's put Elijah on there and kind of say Elijah you're a member but then you don't have to be anymore because someone's come back but then you can hang around mm-hmm. um, and the Avengers I guess um, you know like, you just want some strong characters on there even though you get the cool tech and that goes up a little bit after it's like a, a guy who can shoot a bow and a fast person and a guy who can throw a shield like it wasn't the super um, but for the for the X-Men I, just, I like the idea of a rotating I like I, I like what Hickman's kind of idea was that you could have now they're doing it democratically but it's rotating but 
I like the idea of a more Krakoan thing. Like, there, this is a society. This is a, when it was a school. It was a school. People could be coming and going, and maybe Warren's going to come by and stay for a few weeks, and then he has to leave. Like that. That I would really have preferred. I've never really read a team like that. Though. Like when you ask what my preferred team is. I guess I could talk to you about some of my favorite moments in X Men history with the team. But you know, this is a team I enjoyed. But I think I'll find. Because I'm just thinking as I'm talking, it's probably character interactions, mm. specific character interactions. So I love Rogan Gambit. I think they're great. I love them when they were a were they won't they, and when he was a rascal, and when you know they had rotations on the basketball court and trying to go on a date. And, and I, I was I always find it fascinating with Rogan Gambit because of when we would have started reading comics because again you have the TV series there's the flirtation there and then you have the comics that he really had not been around long at all and then almost instantly they'd put them together and it just gelled like right away like that doesn't always happen that you you know you introduce a new character and it just happens to work perfectly as a love interest he wasn't necessarily designed to be a love interest for, for Rogue she wasn't even like she was in somewhere else he was introduced with Storm like it wasn't like there was in any way I believe that Claremont was thinking, hey, this, this Cajun would really work for this Southern girl. Like, I don't think that, but somehow whoever came, came up with the idea of just kind of, you know, putting these characters together, it just worked. Um, but that doesn't happen every day. And you see a lot of failed attempts at, you know, bringing characters together. But that one was so natural that when we start rereading, which is only like three or four years later, it just feels like sacrosanct. This is, this is the way it has to be. Yeah, and now that they're married, finally, like, <laughs> I mean, I, I confess I dropped off of my interest for those characters for a while. Probably, was it Revolutions? I don't know. That I was like, what is going on? <laughs> um, but, yeah, like, even now married, like, I love them as a married couple. It's great. They have, Remy's got cats. They have cats together. And, uh, you know, like, she's just got this great spunky personality still with him. Like, he's a thief. He's got to thief things. And so, like... She'll let him get his thieving on, and like she's she's down with that. Like there's just this whole kind of great complement of characters. I don't need all my X Men characters to be married, but it's great that there you know finally kind of is one because it was supposed to be Regine and Scott, and that kind of just didn't. Like, are they even really married now anymore? She died. Like till death do us part. Yeah, that's a good question. I don't know. I mean, talk about it. no, no one, talk about it. no one wants to talk about that, right? Like she came back, they finally saw each other, and then we flip right to House of X and we're just in a whole different era. Like it didn't, yeah. and no one really seemed to ever care to go back to that stuff. And, you know, probably the less said, the better, but you know, it's too bad because I mean, I love that kind of stuff and I want to see those types of character moments. Like there's some stuff I'm okay with kind of fast forwarding, but like, I want to see that discussion. I want to see what they know of each other. Like she came back, but he was dead. And then finally he comes back and she's alive. And like, that's a big deal. And yet we never really got to enjoy that, that rich character moment. Now Scott's an interesting one because there's probably an entire generation of fans who just got used to him being with Emma. Because if you started, you know, reading in like 2004, then you don't really know about him with Gene. That's not really a thing. And yet you are an Emma fan and then they're together for 10, 12 years before they kind of end that relationship. And now he's with this other woman. That must be really weird. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and he's maybe potentially also in a relationship with Logan too, right? They're like, okay, I didn't see that. I didn't know that. Right. Um, so yeah, the relationship stuff I think is really important. I like the idea of the dating, and, and but also they can hang out and have a games night. They can hang out and they can have a meal together. Even after, you know, that issue after Onslaught, where they're all in the house together 
and uh, Psylocke kind of drifts in on a shadow, and they're like, didn't know she could do that. And then she sits down at the table, they eat together, mm-hmm. and Iceman's kind of doing his yuck-yuck jokes and freezing um, you know, people's water, and they're just kind of like trying to find themselves after basically the Marvel Universe dies, and what becomes of us now, and are they going to come for Charles, and we'll defend him, right? And they're just kind of like up on the roof, having conversations in the rain, like it's just... That's the stuff I love the most. Baseball games and, um, you know, turkey legs. And uh, that's the stuff that I love the most. Um, when Maro, Mero, however you want to say it, Mero, joins the team, and she has that great, you know, uh, room that she's carved out for herself. That's not supposed to be a pun, I'm sorry. Um, this, this way to a dark pride, right, that she's written down there. And then Logan tries to reach out to her and says, look, I know kid what it's like to be misunderstood and to have these violent thoughts and, like, we can work back from this and, Sessions in the danger room, like there's just something about that sense of community and those issues that took the time to build those connections, and that's why I guess you know ultimately I came up I came up with the cartoon and it was essentially the blue team with some modifications, and the team I get into when I'm starting to read is not the blue team anymore. A bunch of characters have moved around, and now you're seeing Iceman a bunch. I'm like, oh okay, that's cool. And Archangel's here, and he's going to get new art, metal wings, and gonna, he's going to molt into. Metal wings into, into feather wings again. I'm like, oh, okay, that's cool. Like, I didn't know he had feather wings. Like, this is me, right? Just learning who the X Men were. As far as I knew, he had metal wings forever. Although that episode in the, in the cartoon, I guess, I, I guess it wasn't. I didn't know he had feather wings. It's like I guess I didn't know that was possible, and I guess no one did. <laughs> um, they're like, wow, he's regenerated. So all these characters coming and going. I guess I felt like. This is good. This is normal. Even though a part of me always craved the cartoon team, I knew that I love the guest appearances. I love that Nightcrawler appears. I love that there's uh, along come along comes the Juggernaut. That's not what it's called. That's the comic. That's the Wolverine comic. Along comes the Juggernaut. What's the Juggernaut episode called in the cartoon? I don't remember. Right at the top of my head. That with Colossus. I mean, mm-hmm. give me a, that was such a great episode, and Colossus is like a shining star in that. The voice actor is so good. Um, I love everything about it. The, the springing him from the jail with Storm and, and Rogue, like all these combinations of characters that we saw in the cartoon, culminating, you might argue, with Beyond Good and Evil, when it's just everybody. That, to me, I was, I was always just like, yeah, it's a family, it's a it, it's a nation, it's a group, it's an ethnicity, it's culture. And so that's, I guess, why one of the reasons like Koa to me resonates so much. I just love the idea of opening up an X-Men comic and maybe there'll be a bunch of new faces. Hmm. So... I think that may be a difference for me between X-Men and the Avengers from my own enjoyment of it. Mm-hmm. For the Avengers, I don't really need a rotating. I don't. I, I would be shocked or weirded out by that. I'm like, why? This is supposed to be a team and they're, they're training really hard so they can fight the threats that no one single can, no one single hero can. The X-Men, it should just be like, we're trying to find love, we're trying to find acceptance, and we want to make this world better so that our children can not live in fear, right? Like, that's... It's, it's interesting because in our last conversation, I guess last episode uh, that we did together, and we talked about uh, you know some of the differences, some of the things we liked about X Men and Avengers, that kind of stuff. And it's interesting that you have the because remember I asked about like you know which 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 Avenger which X Men character should have a solo book because not a lot actually end up having some solo books, and as a function of that. The Avengers is less about the interpersonal lives, typically. Obviously, they do that as well, but more it's on 
the big threats and the missions. And there's you know some of the character moments as well, um, especially throughout the years when you've had weirder, weirder teams where they didn't have their own books, like Doctor Druid, etc. Like these people didn't have another conduit, so their adventures really just played out in these books. Uh, whereas with with the X Men. Uh, the X-Men was the only place you were going to get the interplay between these characters. So they didn't you know, have another book to walk over into besides Wolverine after a certain point, but you didn't have a, a Cyclops and Jean book to have them go work out their you know, their personal issues over in their own comic and then come back and do all the adventuring. So you yeah. had the X-Men book kind of doing that. Um, I would say some people would argue that the... You know, the 90s were less about plot in some ways and more just long-term soap operatic elements. And I think we definitely live through that and are okay with it because that was kind of our, our first interaction with X-Men comics. So that's what X-Men comics were, is that there was this long... There was a lot of existential dread. There was a lot of, you know, soap operas. And then you'd have, a, you know, a, a tease and a big plot that's coming up later. That's basically every issue from the 90s. I mean, isn't it... I guess because of Claremont, he also was the master or is the master, you might say, of long-form storytelling. He was just better at it, <laughs> right? Because everyone else after he leaves is like, well, this is the most popular comic or one of the most popular comics in the world. So he was doing something right. Let's do what he was doing and then make you know, all those internal politics and then the ex office and the firings and the backstabbing. Well, it's like Claremont knew, knew how to play jazz. Like he would just throw things out, but he knew to come back to them like he kind right. of like he didn't really have plans for a lot of the stuff, but he did throw things. But he always kind of had it per- circulating in his mind, like it was yeah. a like it was a moon orbiting his his brain. And then he'd kind of go back to it when he thought it was you know a good time to oh yeah I should maybe check in on that. And I think he was just really good at doing it. Plus he was in a day and age when he was the only X writer, uh, at least of the X Men adventures. So it was easier to play fast and loose because you were the only one who was guiding it. Uh, whereas yeah. when you have people like Lobdell and Nicieza, like the, you know, they're good writers and they have a lot of ideas, but you know, they're not as skilled at doing what Claremont does, and they don't have the autonomy, obviously, that Claremont had. So the combination of those two things made certain plot lines just never really go anywhere, or feel like they were just kind of throwing things out there and never really ever had a plan. Like, what is Onslaught? That sounds cool. Well, who is Onslaught? We'll figure it out later. Like that—that that only works for so long before it becomes becomes a game of hacky sack, just trying to keep you know the the sack in the air as opposed to actually having a plan for it. Yeah, that's well said. I would say that's a great simile for what the X office was doing. Again, I, I I think I take your point that we don't want to insult the the creativity or the talent of the writers who are working there. But be it editorial oversight, be it corporate needs for the you know the actual company to say, hey, we're moving over a bunch of these Marvel Universe heroes to Liefeld and Lee soon, so you've got to have a big event to kill them. Like be it all those other things that may have come up. Yeah, Hackensack is a great way to put it. It's almost like they're they were playing, they're writing X Men fanfic to try to you know because and every time it's like, well, Isieza has said in interviews, like, I had plans for this, I had plans for that. This is where I was going to go with it, and then he gets fired, right? Like, mm-hmm. so it's not even that he was unable to you know craft his own long form stories. It's just like he didn't have to stay to do it to make it realized. So he end up with. Adam X just kind of in limbo for decades until he can finally finish it in X-Men Legacy. Um, that, that's great. So, yeah, I don't insult those writers, but they were not Claremont and they were not positioned with Claremont hat. So, yeah, I mean, I, talking about creator preference as well, 
Claremont loved the ladies. Like he, he was bored by Scott. He was uninterested in a lot of the male characters, and so he kind of starts writing them out of the comic. And soon, comic is like the comic now. And then Rogue is there, and Psylocke is there, and Dazzler is there, and they're like, "We need a new characters. So we're going to add some more." Jim Lee wants to put some more Asian representation. Great, so I'm the Asian now, and then Jubilee is another Asian character, but they're all female characters. Cons- Love that. Uh, loves telling stories about ladies, and I'm like, big thing. I think there's a really positive thing about the X Men. Followed a lot of female representation. Well, if you, I mean, to that point, if you were to put like the X Men versus the Avengers, there's a lot more women on the X Men. Yes, and they're much more of the more powerful ones too. Yes. Like, I mean, that's been somewhat rectified in more recent years when you have a little, you know, more Avengers who are, you know, female, who are more powerful, um, kind of, you know, um, equaling out with, you know, their male counterparts. But, yeah, for years, you had the Wasp and the Scarlet Witch, and the Scarlet Witch is really powerful, but they never played her that way. They always played her as being much more, like, just doing, like, very uh, reactive things and not being that powerful, and then you'd have... You know, the Wonder Mans and the Visions and the ones who are getting all the screen time with their more, you know, visually arresting powers in terms of how they're able to kind of just show people punching each other. That on the screen is going to, on the, on the page is going to look better if you're not, you know, thinking a certain way. But at least that's become less of an issue, I think. It's still an issue, but it's a less of one, whereas the X-Men, again, much more male-female representation. Yeah, and uh, Scarlet Witch is interesting, too, because a lot of you know, newer readers or watchers or listeners will be like, no, she's very powerful. Not until, what, the 80s with Darker Than Scarlet, and that's only really about her having a breakdown, and then that kind of goes away for a time again, and then she breaks the Avengers with Disassembled, and then they do House of M, and then, okay, she's allowed to be really powerful when, when she's ending the universe or something. Um, really, I don't... How often do you see her like the Elizabeth Olsen role of, of really on the battlefield, just kind of turning the tides of battle going one-to-one with Thanos, like, if that's happening, because I'm not really reading a lot of Avengers right now, if that's happening now, it's probably only happening because of the MCU, not because people are like, no, this is this is Scarlet Witch's character, but no, she was a tinker, she could maybe kind of pop them and make you slip on uh, It's not until, I mean, even, she's more powerful in even the video games often than in, in the comics, like, remember what, Marvel Ultimate Alliance or um, X-Men Legends 2? She can, like, she power where she can just turn people into a box. This horrific power where she can use her probability that this person who used to be a person is now just a box. And then, <laughs> and then when you break the box, like jewels and like stuff, or potions will come out, right? Like you'll get gear from them. So they become a box full of potions and mana potions or whatever. Like it's, hor- it's horrific to think about what the power is. Like that's a, that's a horror show right there. So yeah, she's not she's not that tough. And it's interesting that people complain or have complained uh, about Captain Marvel being super powerful in the MCU. And you're like, <laughs> what do you see what the Phoenix is like? <laughs> what do you see, right, what some of these characters can do and can move molecules around, right, at the subatomic level with their minds? Like, you think <laughs> that this is something powerful? So yeah, the forms of the, the box. Of the, well, it's not like uh, not as much as Gene. And Rogue really has a, 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 a lot of potential too, like grabbing mm-hmm. strength and and on top of super strength and flight. So yeah, that's that's always been really appealing to me as well. The first episode of the cartoon, Night of the Sentinels, Rogue and Storm shopping, and I don't know who these characters are, and I see Remy getting some cards, and I'm like, okay, that's kind of cool. You can do card tricks, and all of a sudden, 
Batman's shooting lightning and Rogue is flying in there and punching this giant robot in the face. And like, for my, my child brain, I had not seen female characters with that level of power before at all. Um, Jean, I was more used to. This, I have some power, but I'll faint every time I use it. That was the, that's the whole invisible woman kind of mm. sad trope. Yeah. Um, so that would be cool to have. If we're going to add this to kind of our, our, our criteria for what makes a good X-Men team, I'd say I, I would prefer to have a, a team that rotates. I would prefer to have a team that has visually, um, who are visual mutants, who are visibly mutants, mutants who are not in hiding, who are not going to play the, we, we want to end, 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 engage with polite society or, or enter into polite society without stirring the pot at all. Like if the X-Men are going to go to the UN to make an announcement, people should be like, oh, wow, they've let mutants in here. Not, oh, who are these five very polite white mm. Yeah. I can tell who they are. Um, and then uh, good representation, female characters as well. It would be nice to have at least 50-50 or, or split, but really necessary just Um, and I think Hickman's doing a lot of the above, right? We're seeing a rotating team. We're seeing something um, visible, even if it's like Sunfire, who, yes, when he's got his his mask off, um, he, he can kind of enter into society. But he's usually on fire. He's usually wearing some kind of dragon clothes, right? So at least not that there. You know, the Dalrins, the beasts, uh, I prefer more of that. Okay. No, part of the reason why I did think about this uh, this idea of like, kind of what makes an X Men team, etc., is uh, kind of as, not as a spoiler per se, but for our next episode, we're going to be talking about some of our favorite X Men covers of all time. So we've been looking at a lot of different X Men teams uh, throughout all these different covers, and it's part of what kind of prompted me to kind of think about you know, what does make a good X Men team. Uh, what am I looking for from a team? And also, when I'm looking at these covers, what also makes them memorable? Now, obviously, in our next episode, we'll get into that a bit more about why our favorite covers are the, are what they are and what eras they may represent and what about them kind of appeals to us. Uh, but yeah, that was that kind of core idea of what really makes X-Men. Yeah, and uh, we were talking before about... Uh, I mean, not we weren't talking about it in great detail but this idea of like you know who do you need on the team and you need some, maybe some heavies some mm-hmm. different kinds of types some personalities maybe you want an energy user maybe you want physical you know it's all with physical strength and again me I, uh, Avengers sure but for X-Men I don't really care I'm fine with four energy users on the team I don't think that's really good as a strike force if we're going to use that <laughs> you know with the Paramount uh, and these x the blue but I don't think the X-Men should be a strike force. I think that they were for so long, and I think that I kind of missed the point. I think that that can be one arm of the, the family, but I think that they should be, and that's why Krakoa, I think, works so well for me, is they should be a people. They should be a movement. I like the idea of like introducing more art and culture and saying we should have music, we should have poetry. Why not? All peoples do. Uh, we need enough peace and, and time and space to do that, to... You would save our people and also buoy them up with love and culture, but it's just a strike force. And again, not a strike force always for fighting back against human supremacists, mostly against evil humans, mutants, evil mutants, mutant supremacists who are trying to turn the tables, who are trying to rule the world, the Magnetos and the Sinister the Apocalypse. Mm-hmm. We're going to fight them. We're going to fight amongst ourselves so the humans will see that we're really good. Um, so I, I, that's... 
I like that I being like one wing of it. I don't care about mutant synergy. Although Vita Ayala has been doing some fun with that, right? In, mm-hmm. in, uh, in their book, uh, New Mutants, with the idea of like, we can do a lot of actual synergy with our powers that we didn't know that we could before. So you could do a team perhaps with three heavies and we find a way to be creative in the way that we uh, make their powers combine. But for the most I mean, part, for me, I don't, I don't care about what their powers are. I guess that term of synergy, I mean, they really took that to the next level with the five, right? Like, the yeah, idea yeah. that you could have these completely separate mutants, a lot of them have been around a long time, and you can, if you, you think about their powers in a certain way, you can have it be what you need it to be from a writing standpoint. They're like, well, how would we, like, I, I would love to know, at what point Hickman was like, wait a minute, <laughs> if we meld the right mutants together, we could figure out mutant resurrection. Like, that's not an easy thing to just kind of come up with. Like, in terms of which mutants he needed in order to do it, it was quite interesting. Yeah, and before this, it was all Mutant Messiah stuff, right? It was like, well, Cable's going to save us, or X-Men's going to save us, or Hope is going to save us, and or even Proteus. Like, he, right, The idea was that, this is a retcon, but the idea is that Moira was trying to create a mutant sire, a mutant son or daughter or child who, who would have so much power that they could be the linchpin in this plan that she was kind of putting together with Xavier at first. And that goes wrong, right? That's a horror show, right? So we see all these, and Magneto at a time, for a time was at least either himself or the acolyte saw him as the savior. Mm-hmm. So now it's a it's a gestalt, right? It's it's a group of them. It's it's, it's coming together as a group and bringing the, all their talents and powers together and working in, in in harmony. That is the Messiah, right? And hope is a part of that gestalt. She's the one that makes it all work. But and that's how you can say, yeah, yeah, that. That work then that storyline it's it's neat how hickman was able to like save that storyline mm-hmm. rather than letting it languish as so many others have and cable was in a way the messiah because he's the one who helped uh, hope survive and hoped helped to bring about krakoa so in that way cable's also the messiah but um you know that was always imagined as no he's just gonna have a big fight with apocalypse with a big gun in the future and shoot him real good and that's how he's the messiah okay i much prefer this idea of bringing people together, mm-hmm. working together and bringing their talents together. So that's really neat. That to me is like X-Men, right? In a way that is not the Fantastic Four, is not Justice League, is not Avengers. That's true. So that's kind of beautiful in its own way. I remember in, what was it, Messiah Complex, which I always felt like had so much unrealized potential uh, because it, just, cause it was the first part, right? So you felt like it was the first part of something big. And at the ending there, when you have Cable you know, asking his dad to give him the child, and having Scott having flashbacks to giving his own yeah. child away, I was like, "That is, if that was what this was all leading up to, I'm in." Like, you know, like there was that storyline with three very different artists. It was just, it was tonally at times really jumping around because you had these very different artists approach. But th- there was a few things there in that storyline that really hit, and that was definitely one of them. Um, and like some things fell flat, like right after that when Xavier dies, doesn't really work doesn't really make me feel anything because that character didn't mean as much at that point. But him taking that little girl into the future and from his dad and being like, trust me, was hugely emotional. And again, not something you would really usually find in other books. There's something about X-Men that plays more with time travel. And I mean, a lot of this, I guess, as you said, the kind of idea of destiny of Messiah um, happens more in the X-Books than it happens in others. It happens, but very much less in other books. I've got to go back and reread that. People are talking about it again online a lot, um, that whole trilogy. And I only have Messiah War. No, sorry. Complex, Complex was the first one. Yeah. Complex, and then War, and then the Second Coming. 
second coming. So I had to go pick up the other two. I didn't even have them. I never read them. Um, and see what they're talking about because, I mean, there's there's some good stuff in there. And there's also, um, you know, a talent like Mike Carey that I respect and, and mm-hmm. I plan to read from as well. So there's stuff to mine from there. But it is neat to see how Hickman's new status quo has really destroyed a lot but also honored so much more and allowed things to be the way they are. And, and this is, again, why I think if we had this conversation before this Kurpoa era, I would probably, I hope, I don't know what I would say, but I would probably say something similar. I like the idea of teams coming and going, I like the idea of characters coming and going or new character faces, mm-hmm. like a static X team, even though I have lots of comics that are essentially static teams and I enjoyed them and, you know, a nostalgia for them, but I don't know, even seeing the, the reality altering events like Age of Apocalypse, all of a sudden it's a whole new team and Exodus is there on the Xbox with Banshee and Dazzler having a cigarette and uh, you've got the astonishing team. Like I uh, never thought you would see a team where Quicksilver, the son of Magneto, is actually taking orders from Rogue, who is his stepmom—not stepmom, yeah, stepmom, right? Stepmom, to yeah. Okay, what? What? This is a weird dynamic. But you got to experience something fresh, and ultimately, the the changing of teams and the the new powers they're introduced were never as interesting to me. Ultimately, as those char- how, how, well, how well those characters are written in interacting with each other. And even if they disagree and don't get along, I'm totally fine with that. It's just, you can explain why they are doing what they're doing, why they're acting together, even if they don't get along. That's mostly what I'm there for. Mm-hmm. One thing I do appreciate very much about the Krakoan era, um, even though I know there's people who don't like it, is that ultimately it feels very additive. They added to the universe. They added new context, new story ideas, new con- you know, all new characters. Like all, they added a whole new uh, sandbox for people to play in. They brought a way to bring back old characters. If you really like that character, but they've been dead, but you really had a good idea for that character, that character's back now. So let's, you know, it was very additive. It wasn't, it wasn't Grant Morrison destroying Genosha. You know, it was destructive. It was taking something away from that universe. I understand his idea was to try and make it so that you know there weren't as many mutants anymore, yeah. so that there was something more to that. And and then they really leaned into that. Obviously, for that decade, teetering on the brink of brink of uh, you know destruction. That there was only a hundred, like two hundred mutants left, which is kind of insane. And now we're in, swinging right back in the other direction where. I feel like post Kokoa, they're probably going to do the same thing again and reduce them to almost nothing in order to try and bring more, you know, suspense and and tension back to the X books. I would imagine. I don't know when the Kokoan era, if ever, is going to truly end, but I could see them destroying Kokoa as a way of kind of being the new Genosha. Yeah, I mean that pendulum, right? But for now, I guess we'll get what we can out, enjoy the stories we can out of it because it's just we never had anything like this before. And yeah, you're right; it has swung so far over to not only can Genosha not happen again because we'll bring all the mutants back to life, but now there's an army waiting for you. Like that, that whole thing of like that, there's all these counterpoints. It really is the antithesis of a lot of what's going on there with the destructive. Starting with Morrison and then going into the, you know, the, the post House of M era. So, yeah, I, I dig it. I like it. It would, it would be nice to see the mutants as actually something to be hated and feared. I, I mean, I don't want them to be hated and feared, but you know what I mean? Like, why do the mutants care if there's under 200 of this almost extinct species left? Like, that's kind of just ignore them, which, yeah, I, my, uh, my hope is that eventually the Krakoa era move into this 
non-sentinel, non-human supremacist, non-mutant supremacist world. They find a way to be communities being built between Instead, we are often, yeah, either feast or famine, right? We have too many mutants or we have too few. <laughs> as long as Gamma and Rogue are around, I'll be happy. So as a, as a kind of closing thoughts, as a spoiler for our next episode, did you find, did, did you take a look at a lot of X-Men covers and kind of preparation? How did you find that process? Was it, like, very really hard to narrow it down to your favorites? Or, like, did, like I ended up with, like, a list of, like, 30. And I was like, I, I have to come down to at least 10 if not five, to really make it ready for our episode. So I found that very challenging to kind of be able to prune them down. How did how many were on your kind of initial list, and how did you go about kind of pruning it down? We'll obviously do more of this on the next episode, but I'm just curious what your your uh, your process was. Um, I I took a bunch of pictures, so I just went through one of my apps, my my comic collecting apps because it's just like it'll have the lists and everything, and then I tried to take screenshots, and then you said that I could have honorable mentions so I definitely took more than five or ten okay now I have to sort them and figure out what are we are we doing five or are we doing ten what are we doing yeah we've always done five uh, okay I mean it had, although I was looking it's been like eight year, almost eight years since we did a top five episode so it's been a long time um, but I found I, I just felt that if we do ten each and there's three of us it's thirty covers some of them we might talk a little bit more about it might go a little long so I just thought let's keep it to five and then we'll have some honorable mentions that we can kind of quickly throw out some that you could delve a little bit more into but some of them we'll just kind of briefly mention them I guess to more specifically answer your question, um, I was surprised at a number of the ones that they just had a personal meaning to me. And mm-hmm. I'm like, I don't think other people are going to agree with that this composition is good, but ever. And I was, was others that I wanted to select because I reminded of them now, like, oh, that's visually arresting. I like stuff like that. Like, it's not my favorite. It's not on my list. None of these are on my list, but like, they definitely stand out to me. I love the use of negative space. I love empty covers. I love. I don't know which issue it is. Is it seven or something like that? Of Astonishing X-Men, uh, the Weed Cassidy stuff, mm-hmm. where it's just Logan off to the side, oh, yeah. claw, looking as, as scared as a mouse just in the corner. Or even that Adam X cover from X-Men... Uh, 39? Or 38, yeah, around there? It's, just a, it's a white cover, and he's kind of crumpled up, and you're like, wait, what is that? Because he has all these spikes of books all over. I so. still don't know. That composition is messy. Yeah, but it looks right. Like, I don't know what I'm looking at, but it looks good because Kubert's so good. Like, it's Andy, right? So I'm just like, well, I'm sure it's something, and it's got my attention. And if that's on the rack, I'm like, oh, I want to look at that. So part of me is like, how many of these on these lists do I just want to put up there because they grab my attention? Like, how much here do I want to put because I think the composition and the colors are so good? I have one on this list that I'm not really in love with the, the, the pencils or the art so much. I just really love the colors. Like, the colors are just so meaningful to that weird era in the mid-90s when there all these digital new digital colorists like that speaks to me it speaks to my nostalgia so yeah I was surprised a number of times by stuff that I was like I don't know if people will agree I have one that I just think is ridiculous but I'm like but I love how ridiculous this is so um, well, again, as I will always say when we do those episodes, they're about, you know, our favorites, not the best. We're not yeah. saying this is the best cover. We're saying this is this. it's your favorite and it meant something to you, and this is the reason why. Yeah. Um, now, one thing, I don't think I ended up with either of them on my shortlist, maybe one of them. Uh, that in the mid-30s of X-Men, the 90s series, when you had two different covers with Gambit and Sabretooth on them, 
Um, you had one where Sabretooth's running up behind him, where Gambit's like just crouched in yeah. the foreground, and the other no, one you actually not. have Gambit on top of uh, Sabretooth with with his uh, staff down at his throat. That's a spiky staff. Yeah. So my question is, of those two, which one do you, do you like more? Oh, so I, you knew exactly. Okay, you knew I would know. Um, yeah, I was looking at them. I, I will. Is this a spoiler? None of them are on my list. Okay. I do like. I actually like this is also on my list. I also like the Sabretooth loves the Sabretooth. Oh yeah, that's like issue twenty-eight or so, something like that. Like leaping, kind of falling, leaping. Mm-hmm. I actually would say that that's my preferred Sabretooth Gene one. I just think that the composition is really, really nice. Um, but of the two you named, the one that got my teenage attention the most was definitely Gambit. With he's got a spiky staff. What? That definitely stood out to me more. Interesting. I always thought that something about the colors felt like it obscured some of the detail of the pencils in the, the latter one, the one you're talking about with the staff, whereas I thought there was more detail, maybe because of the colors not being as, I don't know, I, didn't, I, feel, I felt like they were obscuring some details in the other one, because it was, it was more that more modern look, the more different color, um, different coloring process, whereas the other one felt more of a standard coloring process up to that point, and it felt like it was more capturing the details in the pencils and the inks. So, as much as I think you're right, that one's definitely more thrilling and, and arresting and exciting, and the other one is just kind of cool, but I do think the art in some ways almost looks better on the one oh, yeah. where he's leaping out from behind him. Oh yeah, absolutely. It's a better it's a better cover. Like, just kind of, if we're trying to be objective, but I just thought this, I didn't know Gambit had blades on his staff, and how many more places can you hide blades, right? It was the 90s, everyone had blades. Yeah, right? Um, we so, had blades. <laughs> Don't you remember yeah. walking to school, just having blades everywhere? Yeah, but it's just popping out of our skin. Yeah, kids these days don't know. <laughs> they don't know. Well, I thought, one, I thought um, you know, because I know, I know you have to wrap it up soon. I thought about one more thing. I think it's important for X-Men team, but it might be different for teams. And I know that this is something that Marvel kind of made a name for itself. Um about having just people are regular people and they have disagreements they have arguments that was the whole thing with the Fantastic Four but I think um, having characters who have philosophical differences like importance of philosophical differences on the team I think that's really really interesting I think uh, X-Men are really really good much better like I like Cyclops but it's much better when Cyclops is now I'm trying to defend the last you know, few mutants on my island and I'm going to try to I'm going to do anything possible even Violate moral standards that I've had before to like really take care of them. We got like a storm after Cyclops leaves the X Men, and she is much, much a And then you got Magneto leading the New Mutants, and he's also counterpoint, right? And so whenever they come together, there's any kind of discussion. There's all these uh, and White Queen, who isn't an X Men at the time, she has her own philosophy on the Hellions, and then eventually they all come together, and now you have an astonishing X Men. You've got White Queen, and you've got Cyclops, and to an extent Wolverine. Wolverine is always like the networks kind of guy, mm-hmm. and he's the guy that they call on to make X Force. Uh, so they all have these different philosophies on how you should make your way through the world. Wolverine is very much about non interference. He's very much about like people should make their own choices, and you should be on should honor their um, autonomy. You should honor sovereignty of nations, and you should honor people's choices. Even when something bad's happening, Logan will usually say that's their choice to make. Um, and, and they all kind of differ. So I love these these polls. But Storm is actually written better, in my opinion, by Claremont. She was this great poll perspective. And you've got Callisto leading the Morlocks, and the Morlocks have their own kind of perspective. 
So um, that's what I would like in a team. I like when you have these very strong and usually disparate voices because mm-hmm. that breeds a conversation. And you don't want that for the Avengers, right? It's all yeah. about fall in line. I'm holding up my shield. We're going to charge forward and we're going to defeat the hordes of, of the uh, Annihilus army. Uh, I don't want to debate. Right? I think X-Men are best when they have those different polls. Mm-hmm. It's interesting, right? Because you're right. Um, I, I, if you go back to the you know the beginnings of the giant size era, you have Wolverine and Thunderbird were very much originally kind of cast in the the Hawkeye role. The Hawkeye role was to kind of bicker and kind of you know really cut the leader down to size and you know and really second guess him. And then, but then obviously Claremont was a talented enough writer to take that in other directions. And again, as you said, it really gets down to a different types of philosophy as opposed to just kind of being, you know, Hawkeye being a bit of a dick at the beginning. Like that's just who he was. And it's interesting that eventually you you've only had a couple times where the Avengers really do break apart because of philosophical difference, usually over capital punishment, obviously. I mean, we the the classic one is in the, um, not the Kree Skull War, the Operation uh, Galactic Storm, where they differ on whether or not to kill the supreme intelligence. Um, yeah. And so that that's the dividing line for the team. So you have people picking sides. That's as far as they usually go in terms of, you know, picking a philosophical stance. And obviously yeah. Civil War was another version of that, of seeing Captain America and Iron Man kind of coming up against each other and people falling on two different sides of that. Um, it's usually one or the other. It's not multiple different philosophical differences, as you've said with X-Men, where you have a lot of different you know, takes on it that are informed by those characters' experiences because of who they are, uh, because of this background of being a mutant. That at the end of the day, that's really what, you know, that binds everyone on the X-Men. Um, it's not their powers, per se. It's the fact that they're mutants. Whereas when you have the Avengers together, they all have powers, but they're not banding together because we're all super-powered individuals. Like, that's... That's not a fraternity yep. that they're part of. They're not part of a new subsection that's, you know, I mean, there are metahumans or whatever you want to call them based on which universe you're talking about, but they don't really self-identify that way. They're not like, well, we're both metahumans, so we have to stay together, whereas, you know, mutants do stay together. Yeah. Yeah. The difference between the police and, a, and a, an ethnic group and a family, right? They're, this is a, a fighting force, um, a world UN force, whatever you want to call it, or it's a group of people that... And again, as Krakoa has pointed out or, or shown us, that's why you have amnesty and everyone's allowed. Everyone's granted amnesty. You can all join us. Just just don't burn everything to the ground. And Saber is like, no, 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 no. I'm here to burn everything to the ground. I don't care. It's the pit you go. And the mystique is like, I will secretly burn everything to the ground and not be as vocal as Sabretooth. But yeah, they all still have their own reasons for being there. No one is kidding themselves that Sinister doesn't have a number of ploys on the go. But if you can behave nice, you're one of us because you're a mutant. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you thought you wouldn't be able to do this episode. I knew you'd be rising to the challenge. I mean, it's fun to do. It's just, I, I did not really have an answer. Yeah. It's funny because I meant to text you earlier, and then I realized, oh, I never did. <laughs> it, was like, <laughs> it was like four or five hours ago. I'm like, oh, I'm going to text him what the topic is. And then I realized as we were about to start, I'm like, oh, I, I didn't. Right. In well, my mind... In my mind, I'd given you some prep. Well, I'm glad. I'm glad that it's worked out in your mind, and uh, hopefully next time. Again, if this is your show, this is what you want to do. This is like your mo. That I guess this is what we do. Just like tell people last minute what's happening, and it's like the uh, the the anti uh, J Miles explained the X Men. They're a little too scripted. We're not scripted at all. Yeah, the opposite of being super prepared is like we don't know what we're doing, and uh, we just talk until something makes sense. And we didn't even do that today. Oh, we did. We, it totally made sense. 
That's good. Made sense to me. Well, again, Nate, thanks for joining again. Uh, for those who are listening, if you want to email us, you can do so at comicshenanigans at gmail.com. You can rate the show on iTunes, subscribe to us on iTunes, and also listen to us on Stitcher. If you do rate us and leave us a comment, I'll make sure to re- re- read it on an upcoming episode. Uh, we're slowly building a small catalog of those. Uh, and there's other exciting things in the comic shenanigans kind of sphere that I hope to be able to make public soon. Uh, upcoming episodes will also include interviews with uh, Jed Winnick, Reverend J.M. JM Dimiteus coming back to do a creator commentary on The Child Within, his classic Spider-Man Harry Osborn story, and many other things uh, coming up uh, down the pike. So thanks again for listening, and we'll catch you next time. Bye-bye. Bye.